Our third podcast features the Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari, author of Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and the global bestseller Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. He's also, for medievalists among us, the author of an extraordinary book about covert black ops in the Middle Ages called Special Operations in the Age of Chivalry. Here he is in an extract from a conversation with Rosie Boycott in Cartagena in January 2016, talking about how it was that Homo sapiens emerged from the competition with the bigger-brained Neanderthals and all the other humanoids through an extraordinary ability to cooperate on a mass scale, that the idea of cooperation was both flexible and adaptable. He talks about uh, our power to convince people to believe the same story, whether in religion or politics or society, through imagination, through fictions, the stories we tell, how trust is established through the connection of a common ancestor and a common mythology. Mankind's singular power for creativity and cooperation is, of course, mirrored by a unique capacity for destruction on a similarly mass scale. He's talking here about how the agricultural revolution is history's biggest fraud and about the scientific revolution, how it is that Christopher Columbus is the last medieval man and America Vespucci the first modern. Certainly, Homo sapiens was ruthless, and even before the agricultural revolution, Homo sapiens was responsible not only for the extinction of all other human species, but also for the extinction of about 50% of all the large mammals of the planet. In Australia, it was about 95% of the first humans reached Australia about 45,000 years ago, and within a few thousand years, 95% of the species of large animals in Australia became extinct. In America, the first Homo sapiens reached America about 15,000 years ago. And they came down through Alaska. They came from Siberia and the Bering Strait and Alaska and then down. And within 2,000 years, about 70% of the large mammals of America became extinct. Um, As far as we know, there was no like master plan, let's exterminate all the mammoths and all the mastodons and all the big animals. It was more the result, I mean, humans, you you can say about them not only that, that they are ruthless, even more importantly, they have a very hard time realizing the consequences of their actions. They usually think one, two, three steps ahead they are unable usually to understand what it will mean 10 steps ahead or 20 steps ahead. So humans probably did not have any intention to exterminate the mammoth, but it was the result of their actions. In the case of the other humans though, the Neanderthals and so forth, in this case, there is good reason to think that we really wanted to get rid of all the others. They were in a way, too similar to us to ignore them and too different to tolerate them. And if you think about how today or in, in, during history, humans treat other groups which differ from them simply in skin color or, or language, then how would we treat a different species of humans? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard, it, it's easy to, to imagine. To understand why we did that. So that is, a, that is a one very big thing that makes us different from any other species, that we want to indro- destroy our own. 
Um, again, uh, with regard to motivation, I'm not absolutely certain it's, it's unique. We are unique in having the ability what other to destroy... What other species to get rid of? Uh, as I said earlier, chimpanzees, for example, have territorial wars between okay. neighboring chimpanzee bands. And uh, there are even a few cases uh, uh, witnessed by scientists of a chimpanzee genocide of one group of chimpanzees systematically killing one after the other most of the members of the neighboring chimpanzee band. And we have it with other mammals, we have it with insects, with ants, with termites, and so forth. The real difference is in the ability yeah. of, of humankind that we are capable of destruction, also of creation, but of destruction on a completely different scale than any other animal. I mean, there have been previous cases of mass-scale extinctions in, in the history of planet Earth. All of them were caused by uh, immense natural forces, like 65 million years ago, mm -hmm. an asteroid from outer space, which hit the planet and caused the extinction of all the dinosaurs. But it never happened that a single species of, say, lizard or bear or whatever was responsible for such an extinction event. We now, and not only now, even thousands of years ago, have power of destruction on the same level as an asteroid from outer yeah. space. Yeah, of course. Um, when the agricultural revolution happened, what were we like at that point as a species? Um, in terms of individuals, we're similar to what we are today. Yeah. Perhaps more smart and more capable than we are today. You, you sort of imply that we were happier. Is, um, that, is that right, reading of how you describe it? That we had, we had more ability because we were non-specialist? Yeah, I mean, let's get to the question of happiness in a minute. What we can be quite sure of is that people before the agricultural revolution, say 20,000 years ago, the, the average individual was smarter and more skillful than the average individual today, yeah. simply because you couldn't survive otherwise. Uh, in the modern society, you can survive by specializing in something very, uh, very narrow, like writing history books, and you don't know much about anything else. Yeah. But you don't have to get your own food. Yeah, but you don't have to get, I mean, uh, to get your food, to get your clothes, yeah. to get your shoes, your house, everything. I mean, you just write books or teach in university, you get money, and you buy all of that <laughs> from other people. So you know a lot about a very narrow field. 20,000 years ago, you needed to know everything yourself how to get your food, how to prepare your clothes, how to face all kinds of dangers and, and problems. So people probably were much more on the individual level. They knew much more, they were more skillful. There is also some reason to believe they were happier, yeah. uh, mainly because our bodies and our minds evolved for millions of years in adaptation to living as hunter-gatherers going to the forest, climbing trees, picking apples, running after gazelles, and things like that. After the agricultural revolution, most people, what they do is things that are not really, their bodies and minds are not really adapted for. Whether it's agriculture, or whether it's industry, or whether it's working at a cashier in a supermarket, this is not what this body and this mind evolved to do. And therefore, if you think about 
many of the jobs people perform today, they seem much less, much more boring. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know, the, the person who made this shirt, sure. maybe in some sweatshop in Bangladesh or wherever, working 14 hours a day. And only some, making shirts. Only making shirts, the same, not even the shirt, just the button, this button, yeah. that's yeah. it. And in yeah, a grim. crowded, noisy, polluted factory, 14 hours a day, seven days a week, compare that to going to the woods to look for mushrooms, yeah. I think most people would think that going to the woods to look for mushrooms is more interesting. <laughs> so you take a very, um, well, most people look back on the agricultural revolution and say, wow, that was amazing. That was the time when, you know, people could start to be artists and teachers and politicians because someone else mm. made their food. But in fact, you call it history's biggest fraud. Why? Well, first of all, after the agricultural revolution, yes, a few people could be teachers or artists or, uh, or politicians, but maybe 5% of the population. 95% were peasants. We normally think about the results of the agricultural revolution from the viewpoint of, I don't know, Greek philosophers walking around yeah, Athens no. and discussing the nature <laughs> of the universe because they have slaves that keep them well fed. If you look at the agricultural revolution from the viewpoint, not of, the, not of uh, Socrates, but from the viewpoint of Socrates' slave mm -hmm. or the peasant in some village out, outside Athens, then suddenly the agricultural revolution looks far less appealing. And it's not only what I mentioned earlier, that our bodies and minds are not really adapted to uh, bringing water from the river to the field and harvesting the corn and grinding the corn and so forth. In addition, nutrition for most people deteriorated as a result of agriculture. Uh, prior to the agricultural revolution, humans, hunter-gatherers, ate dozens of different species of plants and animals and mushrooms and fish and whatever. So they got a very balanced nutrition full of all the minerals and vitamins and so forth that they needed. After the agricultural revolution, until the 20th century, in most civilizations, the vast majority of the population, the peasants, subsisted by eating just a very limited number of staple crops, like potatoes yep. in the Andes, like or rice, rice or in, maize. East, in East Asia, or maize in Central America. This was a much poorer diet mm. than previously, and they suffered far more from infectious diseases, which came mostly from domesticated animals. Hunter-gatherers had very few infectious diseases. And on top of all that, you now had the social hierarchies and exploitation. Hunter-gatherers lived in relatively egalitarian society, small bands without property, whereas peasants lived in hierarchical societies mm -hmm. in which a small elite dominated and exploited everybody else. So if you look at it from the viewpoint of the average individual, the agricultural revolution doesn't sound like a very good deal. Yeah, and it, it is the deal with which we've lived in one way or another. So, and I want to take an enormous kind of jump here because I know we've got so much more I want to ask you about. But so in a way, we, we muddled along for a very long time. And in a way, a lot of things didn't change for many thousands of years mm -hmm. until we get to what you describe as the cognitive revolution. The, the scientific revolution. Yes. Yeah. And, and also the, the revolution of language and the revolution of organization. And there were mm -hmm. certain 
key moments in our progress. Yes. What, which ones do you think are the most significant at that, that took us from, in a way, agricultural revolution to where the James Lovelock would call it the Anthropocene when we got mm. into this moment of the um, Industrial Revolution when everything starts to speed up, at an, which we can talk about in a minute. But if you could take us through, gosh, just 10,000 years. Yeah, you know, um, sure. after the Agricultural Revolution, which is about 10,000 years ago, the next big landmark is really the Scientific Revolution which starts around 500 years ago and which is still ongoing, maybe just starting. We can't be sure about it. And the key insight of the scientific revolution, the key discovery of the scientific revolution was the discovery of ignorance. We tend to think about the scientific revolution as a, as a revolution of knowledge, but it's actually, in a fundamental way, a revolution of ignorance. Because prior to the rise of modern science, all human societies were based on the assumption that we already know the answers to all the important questions. All the answers are in the Bible, or in the Quran, or in the Vedas, or in the teaching of the old wise people of the past, or of this God or that God. And this was the basic assumption of, of most societies. Uh, which is why there was little incentive to look for new knowledge. Maybe we can find something new about some unimportant issue, but all the important things are already known. Then science came along, the modern scientific revolution, with this amazing insight that actually we are ignorant. There are many important questions whose answers are unknown to us. And this gave an immense impetus to start looking for new knowledge because the assumption was, still is, that if we can gain important new knowledge, this will give us more power. We could do things that previously we couldn't. But what, what, what made that happen? I mean, what, what stopped the kind of belief in religions, in ideas, and said, actually, we don't know things? What either gave us the confidence, or what, what is it? What, was there a spark, a person, a place? Um, we don't really know. I mean, it started in Europe in the late Middle Ages, early modern period. We don't know why there, why then. Western why not Europe, China? Why not? Western Europe until that time was in the end of the world, a place where nothing interesting ever happened. No big religion came out of there. No big empire. Even the Roman Empire was really a Mediterranean empire, not a Western European mm -hmm. empire. The really significant event, the one event you can point, which is the, the turning point, is the discovery of America. Uh, because the discovery of America was a concrete example of the fact that Europeans didn't know very important things about the world. Usually when we talk about the scientific revolution, we tend to think about astronomy mm -hmm. and Copernicus and Galileo and so forth, but nobody made any money from observing the stars. And nobody won any wars by understanding that the sun is in the center of the solar system and not the Earth. But America was different. When Columbus set sail to America, Columbus is still a medieval person. He is still convinced that he knows everything about the world. And according to his 
prior knowledge and calculations, it should be easy to sail from Spain to East Asia yeah. uh, going westwards. And when he reaches America, until his last day, Columbus refuses to acknowledge that he discovered a new continent because this was impossible. Why was it impossible? Because the Bible doesn't mention it. And the Greek philosophers and geographers don't mention it. For medieval people, the idea that an entire continent could be hiding somewhere and God didn't know about it, Jesus didn't know about it, Moses didn't know about it, it's not possible. So they refuse to acknowledge that America is a, is a new world, a new continent. And this is one of the reasons that America is called America and not Colombia. Yeah. <laughs> is that Columbus didn't take credit for his discoveries. And now it's some island off the coast of China. It's Japan. And then came along Amerigo Vespucci, who did nothing special except saying, look, this is a new continent. This is a new world. And in this sense, Amerigo Vespucci was the first modern person. He was because he was prepared to accept that something he believed was not true. Exactly. Amerigo Vespucci was the first modern person in the sense that he said, we are ignorant. The Bible doesn't have all the answers. Look, there is an entire new continent with gold and silver and slaves and empires and whatever that we can conquer if we only release ourselves from this idea that all the knowledge is already in the ancient traditions. And as the kind of irony or, or, uh, of history, America was named after him. Mm -hmm. So a quarter of the world, basically, is named after a person whose great idea is to admit ignorance. And I think there is some historical justice in, in, in this situation. Mm -hmm. So what, what happened after that, that that put us into this speeding up life? After that, what happens is that people say in Europe realize that by exploring, it starts with geography. The, discipline that really launches the scientific revolution is not astronomy, it's not physics, it's geography. It's the basic idea that if you want to know the world better, just go out there and explore. Which for medieval people was really an extraordinary idea. I mean, why do we need to bother sailing ships to distant unknown lands when we can just read the Bible? Everything is there. But, but the Romans, I mean, they came to Britain, they went to Germany, I mean, they, they moved. I mm -hmm. mean, Genghis Khan, I mean, all through history before that, people had traveled and found new places. Why was this so different? Um, it's the pace which is different. Most prior empires spread rather slowly, and they tended to spread into known territories. The Romans took about 400 years to get from Rome to London. Okay, long when, time. When, when the Spanish come to America, it takes them 10 years. After Cortes conquers Mexico, it takes them just 10 years to sail south and conquer the Inca Empire. They were so uh, obsessed with discovering and conquering, it, it always goes together, discovering and conquering. You don't just, you don't just discover for, for, for the sake of knowledge. You immediately want to take possession. It's a much, much faster process. It's the idea which is common both to modern conquerors and modern scientists that wherever you see a blank spot mm -hmm. on your map, you're drawn to it like, like butterflies to light. 
because you, you say there is, maybe there is something important there that I can discover and conquer. It starts with geography, but then it goes to all other disciplines, to physics, to chemistry, to biology, that you're drawn to the dark places because you tell yourself, maybe there is something important there, and if I discover it, I can have more power. So it starts with the power of imperialism in the 16th century, and today it's the power of biotechnology, of uh, computer science, but the basic idea remains the same, that by gaining new knowledge, you can gain new power, mm -hmm. and that there is nothing that beyond the reach of human beings the only thing that limits us is ignorance. For thousands of years, people lived with the impression that there are problems in the world that humans can never solve. Poverty, uh, epidemics, um, uh, hunger, famine, death, and old age. These are did, all you, part did, of God's plan. But and did people say that they couldn't help with those things? I mean, prior to... You could help, but the idea that you could completely abolish famine from the world, this would have to wait until the second coming of Christ. Okay. Nothing that humans do can really abolish famine or war. But over the last two centuries, humankind has done the impossible. Today, thanks not to the second coming of Christ, thanks to the discoveries of scientists, for the first time in history, more people die today from eating too much yeah. and from eating too little. Yeah. And about three million people die each year from obesity. Yeah. One million die from malnutrition. From Violence is also down. For thousands, of people, for thousands of years, people thought the end of war will come only with the Messiah or when God intervenes. But over the last few decades, human beings by themselves reduced the incidence of violence to the lowest level ever. There are still some wars. I come from the Middle East, so I know. But much fewer than ever before. Again, many more people die from obesity than from war, terrorism, and crime combined. The average American is about a thousand times more likely to be killed by McDonald's than by the Islamic State. Thank you for listening. The Hay Festival podcast is sponsored by Bailey Gifford Investment Managers. You can hear the full-length session from Cartagena over on Hay Player at hayfestival.org.